Welcome back. This is Kelly Gregg of kellygregg.com, and this is podcast number 48 in the continuing series of Diet and Health. Remember, I am trying to induce you to buy my book, Diet and Health, by putting a podcast of each chapter on my website, kellygregg.com. This book is not only a textbook, but also somewhat of a reference book. I have determined while doing these podcasts that several of the chapters are much easier to follow if you use a written version. Therefore, I have included some small ebooks on my other podcast, Health Topics, to assist you in this endeavor. But let's just make it easy. Just go ahead and buy the paperback version. I have combined a few chapters into one, as some of the chapters are fairly short and would make a poorer podcast. I'm hoping I only have about four podcasts left to get through this book. Then I finally get to do more podcasts on some other subject, as I've been doing this for a while and I'm ready to move on. By now, everyone has heard of gluten. More specifically, everyone has heard of gluten-free. This means that whatever gluten is, this product does not have any. Before we start talking about gluten-free, let's see what gluten is. This is a somewhat technical chapter, and I don't blame you if you skip it. It is here mainly for reference. It has almost nothing to do with the maintenance diet, unless some of the food engineer's clients have a gluten problem. As we spoke about earlier, the properties of gluten allow us to have bread that is not as dense and has a more palpable grain texture. It turns out that wheat contains lots of gluten, which is simply a group of proteins that have an elastic property so that it may contain any carbon dioxide produced by the yeast and hence cause the bread to rise upon warming of the yeast. The more rising, the less dense the product. You can make flour out of all kinds of grains and legumes, but only wheat, rye, and barley contain enough gluten to enable the bread to rise. I will talk about oats later. Leavened bread usually means that yeast is present, you can also have chemical leavening, that is baking powder, that can cause a slight rise. You can have all the yeast you want, but if you don't have gluten, you get flatbread. Nowadays, we can buy gluten-free risen bread, which means we don't use grains with gluten, and that we add something else, like xanthan gum, which is a product of the bacteria Xanthomonas compestis, grown in a sugar solution, or you can add guire gum, made from the guire bean plant, to enable a rise. These replicate the elastic properties of gluten, but give the bread a slightly different taste. Almost all the bread eaten in the United States is from wheat and thus contains gluten. I am going to go into a little biochemistry in which the nomenclature is quite confusing. It's almost like this was done intentionally. Anyone with common sense can follow the steps, 
It is just that now we have to learn a little foreign language. This seems to be true of almost all science. It sounds hard, because we just don't know the language. Anyway, my job is to teach you. The gluten proteins are composed of two different kinds of proteins. You have the prolamins, which are plant storage proteins having a high proline acid content, and you have the glutalins. These also form the network that holds starch granules in the endosperm. The prolamins are different in wheat, rye, barley, and oats. In wheat, this group of proteins is called gliadins. In barley, it's horidinins. In rye, it's cicalins. And in oats, it's avenins. All of these are groups of proteins. Remember, I told you that wheat dough is composed of wheat grain with three sets of chromosomes. Each set may code for slightly different proteins, so that with each variety of wheat grain, the composition of the proteins may vary slightly. I am just going to talk about wheat gluten. This group of prolamins proteins in wheat is called gliadins. Let me replace prolamins with gliadins, since I am only talking about wheat. Okay, so now we have... Gluten is composed of gliadins. Remember, the group of prolamins in wheat. If this were barley or rye, it would be horidins or cicalin. And glutalins. To review, I said gluten is composed of prolamins and glutalins, but since we're using a specific protolin called gliadins, now I'm going to say gluten is composed of gliadins and glutalins. You can see how having this in written form is very helpful. Pay attention to the ends of these words, as they are all going to sound alike. Sometimes I wonder if this was done intentionally to make it harder to understand. Sometimes they call a whole group of prolamin proteins gluten proteins, regardless of which grain the prolamin came from. Just like the prolamin proteins in wheat are called gliadins, the glutenin proteins in wheat are called glutenins. Barley and rye glutenins are just called barley glutenin and rye glutenin. So now we have gluten in wheat is composed of gliadins and glutenins. If this were, say, rye bread, it would be gliadins and barley glutenin. In wheat, gluten is formed when the glutenin protein molecules cross-link to form a network attached to the gliadin molecules. This increases the elasticity and thickness of the dough, allowing the yeast carbon dioxide to be trapped in the dough and make it less dense. Throughout history and to this present day, people like their bread to be light and less dense. Most of the bread that is sold is not dense and heavy, but rather light and airy. Most of the problems that drive the creation of gluten-free bread lie in the gliadin component of gluten. The gliadins can be separated into four groups, alpha, beta, gamma, and omega gliadins. These, in turn, are associated with different types of anti-inflammatory diseases, including celiac disease. I will talk about why gluten-free bread exists in the next chapter.
when I talk about celiac disease. Rye, barley, and oats may all be said to contain gluten, but this is not the wheat gluten we are talking about, since the prolamine proteins are different. Nevertheless, we call it gluten and speak of them just as we would wheat gluten. Now is the time to talk about oats. Technically, oats contain gluten, but this is not the same as gluten in wheat, barley, or rye. It does not produce a good enough gluten network that enables bread to rise. Hence, oat bread always has a better gluten source added. When we say gluten-free oat flour, what we mean is that this flour does not contain any components, or very little, of gluten from wheat, barley, or rye. Oats are hulled, and this must be removed before eating. The de-hulled grain is called oat groats. This is the whole grain. You can soak this in water, cook them, and eat them as they are. Needless to say, these have large particle sizes. You can steam the groats and press them between rollers to get rolled oats. The advantage of doing this is that they can cook faster and they have a different texture. You can also get steel-cut oats in which you just chop these groats into little pieces. These have a little longer cook time than rolled and a slightly different texture. Instant oats are the most processed as they are pre-cooked, dried, rolled, and pressed thinner than rolled oats. These cook even faster and are soft and mushy. Unlike flour, all of these have a large particle size. Oats are a grain and are just as good for you as wheat bread. Their disadvantage is that they are not as portable. You could cook up a loaf of bread 4,000 years ago, put it in a sack, and use that for food the next few days if you were traveling. A bag of oats was not quite as portable, and you would have to cook them as needed, although you could just chew the groats. This takes a long time. Like the wheat with hulls, the oats could be stored a long time and used to prevent starvation. Oats like cool, wet summers, so were popular in Ireland and the Scandinavian countries. Since historical records are from the Middle East, and oats did not grow as well there, they did not catch on, so that there is not as much historical information as wheat. Regardless, the usage of bread is just too handy, and it was the most widely used grain. Okay, I know I am disregarding China, who did have a large empire, and was based more on rice than wheat, but I don't speak Chinese. Oats are not really gluten-free. It does have some gluten, although with some different proteins than wheat, and some with gluten sensitivity can tolerate them without reactions. This is always going to be a trial-by-fire approach. If you have real severe celiac disease, do not try it. If you think you have a little gluten sensitivity, you may be able to tolerate oats, and they are a great addition to a nutritious diet. At the end, I will wrap up how we have corrupted wheat bread from its beginning 
and how the processing of flour has contributed to the obesity epidemic. I can't say the same thing about oats. The processing does not lead to small particle sizes, and the use of oat flour is minuscule compared to wheat flour. There are almost no chemical additives. Unfortunately, oats are rather bland and do not provide the flavor of wheat bread. Oats are underutilized in the modern diet. Oats are rich in soluble fiber, which I will discuss toward the end. Back to gluten. Wheat, rye, and barley are the only plants that contain gluten such that the bread can be made from the flour. That flour can contain air and hence be classified as risen bread. The gluten proteins enable the dough to trap gas that can give the final product a crumb structure that is not dense, as well contribute to the overall formation of taste. The ability the ability of grain to be stored for long periods has prevented starvation throughout history. The ability of gluten has enabled flour to be fermented by the yeast and cooked, making the protein and carbohydrate readily available and digestible, all due to gluten. Gluten is not a single protein, but a group of proteins. There are many varieties of bread, which means there are many different genes in bread. This means that the proteins making up gluten may not all be the identical in various varieties. Therefore, when I say gluten, it is not a singular protein, but rather a family of proteins that altogether can create a protein network that is both elastic and plastic, and therefore permit the bread to rise. Rye and barley do not form as strong a gluten network as wheat. Gluten is described as both elastic, meaning if stretched, it will try to return to its original shape, and plastic, meaning it will deform under pressure without tearing. The dough can now expand under the pressure of carbon dioxide produced by the yeast, yet stretched so that the gas cannot escape. If the dough were just elastic, the gas would just accumulate in a few large pockets. If it were just plastic, the gas would escape through the dough. There needs to be a balance of these properties to give us a light, fluffy bread. The water-soluble albumin and globulin proteins account for about 20% of the protein in flour. The insoluble gluten proteins, gliadins and glutenins, account for the rest. The gluten proteins are quite large, from a few thousand amino acids up to a million. If you add a few million water molecules, the interaction becomes quite complicated and is not completely understood. These proteins are long chains, sometimes coil, and may have different side chains. They may be folded on back to itself, or intertwined with itself, or with other proteins, and can be chemically bonded to other proteins even then. Gluten proteins do not dissolve in water, but water molecules can fill spaces between the tangles of protein. When water is mixed with flour, the proteins begin to untangle as the water molecules separate the gluten molecules by forming hydrogen bonds. The kneading of bread, which is necessary to form an organized gluten network, 
aligns these molecules as they are unfolded and thus facilitates cross-linkings between the protein chains, which stiffens the dough. There is still some coiling of the molecules, and this contributes to the elasticity of the dough. As you straighten out the molecules through kneading, the coil topography tends to pull them back together. Fat in the flour and salt molecules affect the cross-linking in multiple ways that can either strengthen the cross-linking bonds or weaken them. The bonds between gluten molecules often involve sulfur atoms, and these bonds can be broken or even encouraged with the physical manipulation of the environment, that is, kneading. It is even possible to break down the gluten network by overneeding, although this is unlikely unless you are using machinery. You now know more about gluten than most people. For most people, you don't need to know any of these details, just that you need gluten in the flour to make risen bread. Still, this book does serve as a reference book as well as a textbook, so I had to include the chapter. At least you can recognize the role of gluten in the history of bread. I must now remind you to go buy my book. My wife is getting tired of me spending all this time making these podcasts and actually writing these books. Unless I make more money at it, she is going to insist that I get another part-time job. I already have one part-time job, and there are only so many hours in the day.